I've been thinking about something. Yeah, so have I. I don't think the deal is fair. You don't think it's no, fair? No, no, no. I found the place. I set the whole thing up. I'm doing all the legwork. What legwork? Oh, there's legwork. If anything, you're getting too much. <laughs> too much? That's right. They're my coats. Okay, look, I want 35%. I'm thinking more like 15. No way I've taken 15. Well, you're not getting 35. All right, let's compromise. 25%. Okay, it's a deal. My guest today is economist and trade historian Douglas Irwin. He is a professor of economics at Dartmouth College, a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research, and the author of the really great new book, Clashing Over Commerce, A History of U.S. Trade Policy. He joins me today to talk about the book and the ongoing trade disputes uh, the U.S. is currently involved in. Doug, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm delighted you are here. I, I read through the book earlier uh, earlier this summer. It was uh, top of my summer reading list. I had sort of paged through it previously, but I gave it a thorough cover-to-cover read. And as I was going back through it in preparation for the podcast, I remember I had one – I had a I had a lot of things, Mark. But I had this quote. Somebody you quoted. It was a, uh, a Democratic congressman, I think, from the late 1800s. And in this quote, I think he echoed the lament of free traders everywhere. He said, the trouble with the tariff question – is that the Republicans have the advantage on catchwords, uh, and the Republicans were the protectionists at the time. They have the advantage on catchwords, and the people, as a rule, do not understand the question, and it is too hard a study for them. Protectionists always seem to have the, the, the advantage. They, they seem to have the, the, the simpler, more easily understandable argument, and that, that seems to still be the case today. It very much is the case. And first of all, congratulations, or at least my hat's off to you for actually plowing through the book. It's not exactly a light summer beach read. Um, so I appreciate that you took the time and interest in it. But I think you're absolutely right. Even going back to Adam Smith's day, um, free trade has always been a bit of a harder sell because one can always say with uh, by imposing tariffs on a particular imports or to help a particular industry, they're going to save jobs in that industry. And who's against that? And the uh, knockoff effects, the ramifications of it, are uh, you know diffuse, uh, hard to always pick up, um, and uh, people see that uh, the people you're helping with the tariff, but not who you're hurting by imposing the tariff. Exactly, and again, that that, that is certainly the example. Though it's interesting, though, perhaps now that we're having we're in a, a period of a more protectionist period, we're sort of seeing that flip around, and that now you see the people sort of being hurt by these tariffs. They're the ones who are getting stories in the local papers, some local manufacturer who has has had a layoff. So perhaps we're in a period where maybe that's flipping around a little bit. I think that's right, because uh, that quote that you took was from the late 19th century. The U.S. tariff level was pretty high back then, probably 40 to 50 percent or so. And so the argument was, well, we should reduce these tariffs. Well, the immediate effect of reducing the tariff is certain import competing industries are going to be hurt because imports will increase and the benefits to consumers or exporters or others will be very hard to detect. Now, as you point out, we're exactly in the opposite situation where on average we have pretty low tariffs. So the statement now from the Trump administration or from others is, well, we ought to increase those. And yes, there are going to be beneficiaries in terms of the import competing industry once again. But because our status quo in some sense is the low tariff equilibrium, now we're imposing taxes. And the question is, who's going to pay those taxes and who's going to be hurt? And so you're absolutely right. The press has been very good over the past year or so in pointing out 
the harm to exporters, the harm to uh, user industries from, say, higher steel tariffs. And so the costs of uh, the tariffs are much more uh, readily apparent now than perhaps the benefits of lower tariffs would have been in the late 19th century. Right. And I, I sort of and I do want to sort of walk through sort of sort of the evolution of U.S. trade policy here. But I wanted to start with sort of a, uh, a, a big question, since it's maybe it's a question we wouldn't have a lot of people wouldn't have asked a few years ago, but they certainly ask it now. If you look at U.S. trade policy since since World War II, has U.S. trade overall helped the American middle class or has it hurt the American middle class? And has that sort of changed as you know, throughout the decades? It's changed a little bit, but uh, and uh, it's very hard to give sort of an, an unequivocal answer one way or the other in terms of uh, uh, talking about everyone because economists do focus on the distributional consequences. And just because uh, some groups are harmed, of course, doesn't mean that uh, one would say that the entire middle class has been hurt or or um, all elements that middle class have benefited from uh, more open trade. But here's the way I would put it, is that the disruption, uh, well, we entered the post-World War II period with uh, pretty low tariffs because we uh, established something known as the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade after the war. We didn't face a lot of foreign competition in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, Japan and Western Europe were still recovering from the war. And so a lot of our major manufacturing industries didn't face a lot of foreign competition. A lot of American workers were not really adversely affected as a result of imports. The world really began to change in the 1970s um, as uh, Western Europe, Germany in particular, and uh, Japan and East Asia began exporting products that uh, um, were substitutes for domestic producers, whether we're talking about steel or autos or what have you. And I think people try to take those few examples where uh, a lot of U.S. industries have been sort of um, affected by foreign competition, talked about uh, some of the workers who have been laid off, and then sort of say, well, the entire middle class then is worse off as a result of trade. But of course, uh, even in the uh, immediate post-war period, uh, only uh, less than you know half, only about a third of the U.S. workforce was in manufacturing. We export a lot of manufactured goods, so a lot of uh, uh, workers depend on exports for their jobs. Um, so there's no denying that certain workers in certain industries have been adversely affected as a result of imports. But when you talk about uh, the productivity improvements that come about as a result of trade, jobs that are created by exports, um, and the benefits to consumers, I would say on balance, America's uh, uh, better off. Um, but one can't deny that certain, certain groups have been uh, potentially worse off as a result. And, the, and, and those examples that people will point to where um, and they and they, you know, they've been pointing certainly is, you know, I guess, starting in the I mean, that's where it sort of started the turn. You had the 50s and 60s where, you know, the U.S., you know, obviously was um, uh, exporting a, a lot. You had you had all these other advanced economies sort of rebuilding after World War Two. And then they sort of rebuilt and the competitive situation changed. It did, and that, and that, then that sort of new period of competition, which I think people, you know, credited or blamed on the trade policies of those countries, rather just sort of merely the fact that they were no longer in shambles, that they had recovered and they had, you know, they had thriving economies. They're, they sort of blame that competition on, on those countries having tariffs or other sorts of, you know, uh, ways of restricting U.S. exports into those countries. And so that because that became I think that became sort of the focus on what those countries were doing to harm us rather than sort of just sort of the natural evolution of their economies. Right. And it's certainly very much a natural evolution story. Um, Japan, Western Europe, they were um, you know, a big part of world trade in the interwar period. And uh, they were sort of artificially depressed after World War II. And so it was only natural that uh, they came back, grew rapidly, began exporting and importing more. 
And that's something that the U.S. encouraged. Uh, we certainly couldn't um, stop it. And we did want to encourage it for uh, uh, geopolitical reasons. Um, that is fight against communism and trying to uh, you know, raise living standards uh, in the free world. Yeah, but so, so right. So, so we had this sort of so there was a huge sort of foreign policy, you know, explanation for sort of U.S. trade policy. But then um, that sort of began to change. You had, you had the decline of the Cold War. You had uh, you had sort of the rise in Asia. So all of a sudden, I, I, and and in the book you go over this really fantastic story in the 1970s. You had sort of this. Sh- you had sort of a shift where there seemed to be sort of a broad consensus, more or less about trade in the immediate decades. Everything was going great, fast economic growth. And then that shift started, started to, uh, that, 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 that attitude started to, to shift uh, slowly, sort of perhaps eventually getting to where we are now. That's right. Uh, it, there was a bill um, it's called the Burke Hartke Bill uh, in 1970 um, that I believe uh, was considered by the House and never really passed. But that was the first indication that some sectors and some uh, political constituencies were upset with what was going on in terms of trade, uh, and they were going to try to do something in Congress to sort of uh, uh, limit trade. But I think, fortunately, the constructive way that uh, both Republican and Democratic administrations have handled that is saying, well, we have to uh, press our trading partners to open up themselves and get rid of policies that adversely affect uh, our ability to sell to them, uh, rather than closing off or protecting the U.S. market. Um, and I think generally that's worked out very well for the United States ever since. Right. And that's ca- and that's sort of that's called sort of reciprocity. Right. Where you where you're where you're going to use your your trade policy to lower trade barriers over overseas. Right. Exactly. All right. So, so that, uh, and that's what the, and that, but that, that, of course, is what President Trump has said his policy is. He says I, he, he loves the word. He said he loves the word reciprocity. So when the president talks about reciprocity, is that it sounds like that's very much in keeping with U.S. sort of post-World War II trade policy, right? Yes, if, if he speaks about that uh, we want to negotiate with other countries, um, sometimes under the threat of retaliation, to get rid of foreign trade barriers, that's very much been uh, a standard practice for the United States um, for many decades. I guess the question one could raise about the Trump administration is he's also said that protection and tariffs are very good. He loves tariffs too. So it's hard to decipher whether he really wants ultimately uh, free trade with uh, zero tariffs or whether he really likes protection. And then another issue is whether uh, his threats of tariffs and the actual implementation of them are actually bringing other countries to the negotiating table and whether any good and concrete uh, trade agreements will come about as a result of that. So there, I think uh, things remain to be seen. As I sort of of think about the president and when he talks about reciprocity, it seems to me that if he looks at a trade agreement and there is an some other country has a 10% tariff on this product and the tariff is lower here. He says, oh, that's a bad trade agreement. But that, I mean, that's not how trade agreements get put together. That, you know, there might be an unfair tariff uh, on one product that the other country wants yet. And, and then that might have been negotiated. So you, there's a higher tariff on a different product that the United States may have. There may be a powerful interest group. So it seems to me that that's the issue where the president sort of looks at these things in isolation rather than sort of broadly at how the you know what the whole agreement looks like what tariffs are in the whole agreement and how we arrive there yeah and what you really have to differentiate is between agreements reached at the multilateral multilateral level under the gad or the wto versus uh, bilateral or regional free trade agreements so under the gad you know uh, Countries basically come to the bargaining table with their existing tariffs and they agree to, say, slash them across the board by 10, 20 percent or so. But that leaves in place sort of the different levels across countries. 
Right. Um, and those are sort of built in, say, uh, with the uh, U.S. trade with the EU. But when we have a free trade agreement, uh, such as NAFTA or uh, the TPP, which we uh, may have go- could have gone into, but the president decided that uh, he wouldn't, those are ones that actually abolish tariffs. So, uh, you know, he should be a big fan of NAFTA because na- under NAFTA, Mexico doesn't impose tariffs on U.S. trade um, and sort of zero on both sides. And the reason he complains about the Europeans and talks about their, say, 10% tax on U.S. autos as mm-hmm. opposed to 2.5% tax that the U.S. imposes is we don't have a free trade agreement with the EU. But if he was really concerned about that, the obvious solution would be, well, let's negotiate a free trade agreement with the EU. And, uh, yeah, the president has talked a lot about, particularly with Germany, those tariffs on U.S. and U.S. auto uh, exports to Europe. Uh, does not talk about does not talk about any tariffs, particularly I guess on light trucks, pickup trucks. We have like I think a twenty five percent tariff, which leads me to believe does he really just want the other side to get rid of their tariffs and the sort of the status quo on the American side? Exactly. So uh, in any negotiation, it's uh, you can get something, but you have to give up something. So if we really want, say, European or Japanese or other tariffs to go down, the question is, well, what are we willing to give up to get that? Is he willing to get rid of the 25 percent truck tariff or the very high tariffs we have on textiles or the very high tariffs we have on certain agricultural goods? Um, He's never said anything about that. So the art of the deal, well, we'll have to see uh, what he's willing to give up to to get something. They've suggested one possible deal is sort of what they've called, like, I think there's the zero scenario, whether it be zero tariffs, zero subsidies, zero any kind of sort of restriction. So it'd be uh, kind of this this perfect, you know, libertarian, I don't know, just perfect free trade. And that, he says, is the goal, which is which is interesting. One, I wonder what you what you think about sort of that scenario. And under that scenario, would the U.S. still run trade deficits? Ah, that's a very good point, because I think, you know, uh, we talked about NAFTA just a moment ago. NAFTA does have zero tariffs between the U.S., Canada and Mexico, um, but he says it's been a disaster and he doesn't like it. So that's sort of an indication that it's not the tariff levels there, which are zero on all sides. That's the issue for him. He's really concerned about the fact that the U.S. has a trade deficit. And uh, that's something that, first of all, you can't write that into a trade agreement. A trade agreement does not specify what the, the level of trade will be or the balance of trade. It just specifies what the government rules of the game for trade are. And uh, so it doesn't guarantee a particular outcome. So just having free trade doesn't mean that the U.S. will be running a trade surplus or a trade deficit. That's determined by other macroeconomic factors, such as capital flows. Essentially, you mentioned capital flows. And uh, in all, and, and I've, I've read a lot about what the president has, has said about trade. He's been talking about trade uh, since the 1980s, you know, about trade deficits and how bad trade deficits are. And trade deficits are a sign that the U.S. has negotiated a bunch of bad agreements and we're letting other countries take advantage of it. I don't think I've ever heard the president, and, and generally I don't. I, I, I tend not to really hear this from um, protectionists, but certainly I have not heard from the president. And you go into quite a bit of detail in your book uh, about sort of the Rust Belt and deindustrialization. And when you write about it, it's really not a story of bad trade agreements. It's really a story of capital flows and really it's a, it's a story about the strong U.S. dollar. And it's also a story about uh, technological change in the U.S. and the, the movement of industries. So I'm talking to you from New England, the state of New Hampshire, where uh, uh, Manchester, New Hampshire used to be one of the centers of the textile business in the United States. And there are huge brick mills along the uh, river in uh, downtown Manchester, uh, producing no textiles whatsoever anymore. Um, What happened is, is those industries moved to the south, to the Carolinas. 
uh, around the turn of the century, uh, about 100 years ago or so. Um, there's a lot of uh, structural change in U.S. manufacturing that's even independent of uh, international trade. It has to do with uh, industries moving to the south, either because the states have uh, better investment climates, lower wages, uh, better tax treatment or what have you, and technological change, which uh, alters uh, uh, how much labor you need to produce a certain amount of output. So we've lost a lot of jobs in the steel industry, um, but that steel output is not down. It's just the fact that we're getting more and more productive and we need fewer workers to produce the same amount of steel as we did before. So we sometimes overrate, I think, international factors in terms of driving the structure of the U.S. economy when it's really technology and, and domestic developments that are important. It's interesting because you do write about sort of the, the 1980s, and that's really, where I think, where it's sort of the, the protectionist sentiment really kicked up. And you certainly saw, I think, Democrats in particular became more protectionist. I remember, you know, you know candidates running for president with a lot of very protectionist ads. And there was a famous ad when Bob Carey ran for president, senator from Nebraska, and it, he was like a goalie you know, in front of a net trying to pretend the, and the net was supposed to I think be the U.S. economy and he was protecting it, protecting it from the other hockey team, I think, which was supposed to be Japan or something. But rarely do I hear, hear, hear again, hear sort of the more protection people talk about just a very, very strong dollar is really hurting some of these manufacturing regions. Yeah, that's once again, it's not a lever that the uh, Congress or the uh, president directly has under their control in terms of influencing the value of the dollar. That has more to do with obviously, um, uh, the Federal Reserve and, and other factors. Um, so trade policy becomes very easy uh, to sort of propose those sorts of interventions rather than really thinking through, you know, how can we uh, save more as a country so uh, our trade deficit will be lower? Right. right. So if, uh, you know, so, so the focus of U.S. trade policy since, you know, the post-war era has been reciprocity. We used to talk, you know, using trade policy to lower barriers elsewhere. You, ha- you, had, you had a previous period in the sort of the post-Civil War area. And those are, and, and we're the two big events which sort of tra- changed sort of U.S. trade policy, the Civil War and the Great Depression. And after the Civil War, trade policy focused on protection, protecting U.S. industries, keeping the domestic market for domestic producers, sort of, you know, reducing, reducing imports. And a lot of people today will say, that was a great time for America. The U.S. economy boomed. That's when we became a, you know, a major economic power. If you're looking for an historic example of U.S. trade policy done right, it's the sort of the post-Civil War era. Maybe we should go back to that. Maybe they had it right back then. Yeah, a lot of people will say, you know, we grew very rapidly in the late 19th century. We industrialized as a country and we had high tariffs. And ergo, the tariffs are responsible for those uh, good times. And uh, therefore, we should go back to that. You hear that from Pat Buchanan. Um, and other, uh, other people have said that, probably even Steve Bannon, maybe even the president himself. But, you know, when you look at that era, actually, in the late 19th century, the U.S. was a very open economy. We were open for immigration, and we did, indeed had massive immigration. We were open to capital from the rest of the world, and we were able to borrow and purchase uh, a lot of technology. So uh, it's not as though we were sort of an isolationist country, uh, you know, with uh, big barriers. Yes, we did have uh, fairly stiff tariffs on imported manufactured goods, but otherwise we were uh, very open to uh, what was going on in the world economy. In fact, immigration, as I point out in the book, was actually a key instigator in terms of the development of uh, many manufacturing industries in the United States. So we've never really had a period in U.S. history when we've been closed been closed both to trade and to immigration. And in addition, you know, it re- becomes very hard actually to attribute uh, U.S. economic growth in the late 19th century to those higher tariffs. A lot of the um, uh, key improvements in technology and a lot of the growth was in the service sector, um, telecommunications, railroads, and things of that sort. 
Uh, manufacturing really didn't grow much as a share of GDP in the late 19th century. A lot of that grew actually uh, in the pre-Civil War period when uh, tariffs were actually much lower, only in the range of 20% or so. So, the, the, so sort of a simplistic argument that one encounters a lot that tariffs allowed us to grow rapidly in the late 19th century. But the more you sort of uh, look into it, um, you see it's a really tough case to make. A lot of other factors were involved um, and the tariffs were probably uh, third or fourth order. And it's not even clear that they had a positive impact as opposed to a negative impact. People often will you know, do sort of, it's, you know, they believe correlation is, is causation. So the U.S. economy did very well during that period. We had high tariffs. Therefore, sort of one, uh, the tariffs caused the, uh, the high growth. And then sort of the flip side is you have Smoot-Hawley where people sort of blame, blame those high tariffs for the, uh, for, for the Great Depression. So there you have sort of another event which sort of changed the attitudes and politics and policy uh, about tariffs, if, if perhaps unfairly. That's right. It, you know, the simplistic statement, too, that um, just as tariffs were not responsible for the boom, if you can call it that, in the late 19th century, tariffs weren't responsible entirely for the bust during the Great Depression. Uh, Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz obviously have their great book, A Monetary History of the United States, pointing out the role of monetary policy in the Federal Reserve in allowing deflation to take place and uh, the economic collapse of our banking and financial system. But, you know, Smoot-Hawley, those higher tariffs that were instituted in 1930 um, did lead to retaliation against the U.S., did uh, lead to a contraction of U.S. trade, and I think did contribute to, in some measure to the Great Depression and certainly a lot of the problems in trade at that, in the 1930s. Smoot-Hawley, did they expect retaliation? Uh, that's actually interesting. You, you mentioned that. It reminds me of Peter Navarro, who said, you know, other countries won't retaliate today when we impose these things. And of course, they had. Um, a lot of people were warning of foreign retaliation, um, but uh, they sort of said, well, it's, uh, you know, first of all, we can't control that. It's a domestic matter. Countries shouldn't interfere with our process in terms of making these threats. And they basically tried to uh, shove it under the carpet and ignore it. And I think probably they even they were surprised at how much retaliation there was from Canada, uh, our largest trading partner at the time, and, and other countries as well. A lot of discrimination aimed at the U.S. Uh, and partly it was... Um, uh, just because uh, it was a fragile period in the world economy. Um, other countries were trying to pay off their World War I debts to the U.S. and uh, thought the U.S. action was just uh, totally um, uncalled for, particularly at a time when U.S. manufacturing and U.S. industry overall didn't really need any tariff protection. They weren't being beset by imports. Um, imports were very stable as a share of GDP. Um, the Smoot-Hawley tariff was first uh, thought about and actually passed in the House uh, during the uh, boom period before uh, the stock market crash in early 1929. Um, so we had a roaring economy, and there's a big difference uh, in terms of how other countries perceive it when you impose tariffs when your country's booming as opposed to when you're in a recession or imports are coming in. That myth, the myth of Smoot-Hawley and the Great Depression, I mean, that's sort of, if you're a free trader, that's a great, you know, that's a hard myth to give up. It really, I mean, cause it really works for your cause. I think when, uh, when Al Gore debated Ross Perot about NAFTA, I think even on Larry King uh, many years ago, he even brought out, I think, a picture of Smoot and Hawley to sort of drive that point, drive that point home. It, but it's, again, it's a, it's a tough myth uh, to give up. I want to ask you just, uh, just quickly, uh, while we sort of talked a little bit about history, uh, Alexander Hamilton, was he a protectionist? Uh, he has that reputation because of his report on manufacturers in uh, 1791, uh, which is a great report, but it's much more nuanced than is commonly portrayed. Uh, the, the standard view is that, well, he advocated higher tariffs in government industrial policy, if you will, 
And that's certainly true um, that uh, the U.S. did not have a very diversified economy back then, and he wanted uh, government promotion of manufacturers, which weren't uh, uh, sort of being uh, stimulated at that time. But he really wanted it uh, on a much more limited scale. He wanted subsidies uh, and um, uh, sort of encouragements to invest rather than high tariffs. He didn't think tariffs would really um, work so well in terms of uh, getting manufacturing going. So I think uh, the best way to describe it is he wanted to promote manufacturing. Uh, he didn't want to necessarily protect it from foreign competition because he did recognize that it would lead to inefficiency um, and a, a lower overall uh, volume of trade. Uh, so I think you have to take him in context uh, of the time when the U.S. Uh, was just, you know, had exited uh, a major war with a, a major power, the U.K. We were basically an ag agricultural country, um, very different than uh, conditions in, later in the 19th century or certainly the 20th century. All right. And, and as we were just saying, sort of, you know, uh, assuming that if there, we have good times, it's because it's because of trade policy. Bad times, you, you, bl you blame trade policy. Do you, and it, does that help explain what's going on right now with trade, uh, with trade that we've had this sort of, we had, we had a, you know, the 2000s have been economically not great. <laughs> we, had, we had a financial crisis, depression, you know, even coming out in the early 2000s, there was talk about jobless recovery. So it's been a disappearing, it's been a disappointing sort of, you know, decade and a half. And does that, do you think that explains why trade seems to be a salient issue or is it just all Trump? Trump is making a really good case. So, I mean, what, how do you explain sort of, you know, what's going on with trade right now, given that you would think that the worst of sort of the China shock, which we've sort of alluded to, that's that would seem to have passed. Right. That's a great question. And I think it is largely Trump. Um, there's no doubt that uh, there was the China shock, which hurt uh, certain um, uh, regions of the U.S. or certain uh, commuting areas. There's no doubt that the financial crisis of 2008 was a, a big setback for the U.S. economy. But it's not as though there were huge protectionist pressures, uh, say, in 2009, 2010, 2011. Yes, lingering hurt, but uh, it didn't manifest itself in, in demands for protection, certainly after the financial crisis, when imports as a share of GDP fell, um, didn't rise. So Trump has been very consistent on this since the 1980s in terms of his embracing of protection and his uh, concern in the 80s about Japan and now about China and other countries. So I think it's largely driven by him rather than sort of some underlying uh, pressure for protection, particularly at a time when the uh, unemployment rate is about 4%, when the uh, import to GDP ratio has been stable for about 10 years, uh, when the economy is doing pretty well. So there's a big contrast between, between now, say, and the early 1980s when the U.S. was in a major recession, the dollar was surging and the trade deficit was uh, uh, rising, in which case uh, President Reagan, uh, probably despite his rhetoric and, and better instincts, uh, was sort of forced politically to impose a lot of protectionist measures. This president is not being forced to impose these measures. These are things that he wants and he has embraced. So I think it's largely a, a Trump-specific policy. So, I mean, so, so the natural question to ask, if, you, if, if the two other sort of big changes in U.S. trade policy, uh, the Civil War and the Great Depression, the natural question to ask is number three, President Trump. Or is, or is it really the case, per, perhaps, that number three is really rising Asia, rising China? That Remember, during, during the presidential campaign, even, uh, Hillary Clinton was also very expressed skepticism about the sort of the Pacific trade deal. And do you think we, because there is this rising power, which is kind of a combination of, you know, you have the economic threat like we did with Japan in the 1980s. And also it's also a military threat against sort of like the Soviet Union in the 1980s, that it seems to be this 
military, economic, ideological threat and worrying about their trade policies is sort of a, you know, it's a very natural thing to happen. And perhaps perhaps a third turning point, if you had the Civil War and the Great Depression, maybe number three is rising China. It could be. In fact, as I was finishing the book, I had to uh, think about how I would treat Trump in the last few pages. It was very early in the administration, so I didn't really have the opportunity to um, elaborate very much. I think, obviously, it remains to be seen. You know, China here, though, um, we're going to see a negative China shock in coming decades. Um, China's uh, workforce is shrinking, just as Japan has already previously shrunk. Um, you know, they had, the, the, because of the ch- one-child policy and declining fertility, um, we're now beginning to see, um, you know, total labor force of China uh, contracting rather than expanding. Um, it expanded greatly in the uh, 70s and 80s and into the 90s. And that's partly the the China shock, not only them opening up, but just bringing a lot of people into the labor force from the rural countryside and the growth in the labor force overall. So we've sort of made that adjustment, I think, largely to China um, in terms of just the volume, their impact on world markets. The big challenge, of course, is as they move up in terms of uh, greater technology um, and want a very different system that doesn't allow U.S. firms to participate or if they move you know, towards more state control. That would, you know, I think there's going to be friction between the U.S. and China, regardless of who is president. That's not necessarily a, a Trump-specific thing, right. although he's probably exacerbated it. Any president, I think, would have to really think hard and carefully about how to confront China. But I think in terms of bringing the developing world into the world economy, that's largely been accomplished with the uh, possible exception of Africa. And uh, a lot of uh, adjustments have already been made, uh, painful though they might have been for certain communities. So I think... If we are in a new era, you know, it would be largely because of the president, um, not because of some of those other developments. Was it a mistake to let China into the World Trade Organization? No, I don't think so at all. Um, and uh, it has generated a lot of debate uh, recently. And I think um, given what we knew at the time, uh, getting China to uh, reduce its tariffs, um, bind itself in terms of uh, certain actions, in terms of uh, investment, things of that sort, you know, we established a, a framework of rule rules and um, uh, procedures for um, uh, bringing China into the world economy. I think what what has changed, however, is that there are a lot of uh, things that the Chinese government is doing that are not covered by WTO rules. Um, We haven't been exactly um, persistent in terms of enforcing the rules that uh, uh, do apply to China um, uh, most effectively. Um, So I I do think there's this uh, tension in this uh, question that we have in terms of how we deal with them. But in terms of bringing them into the system, that wasn't, uh, I don't think, a mistake at all at the time. A lot of the bid and trade is also about its technology. China steals their technology, intellectual property. They force companies to give them their technology. Is that sort of the bigger debate going forward rather than tariff levels? Yeah, it's not so much the tariffs. It's the other, um, quote unquote, industrial policies that they're pursuing um, outside of uh, uh, tariff levels. And once again, here's all. Here's where I, you know, I'd qualify what I just said. Is that the, I think the hope and the expectation was when China was uh, being brought into the WTO, is they'd be moving like Eastern Europe and uh, the former Soviet uh, Union had done, moving towards a more um, open, uh, market-oriented economy. And uh, China has in the past moved in that direction, but under President Xi, they've moved in a very different direction. So I think in part it depends on changes in, in uh, China. Um, you know, what direction they want to go um, and whether we can reach agreements with uh, new rules that will sort of uh, bring them in the direction that's more compatible with Western-oriented, market-oriented systems. 
you think that's likely? I mean, sort of the obvious, another obvious question is, what is the, what does the end game look like? China and the United States. Some people think, oh, we'll eventually just sign a deal in which, you know, our, our exports to China will increase. Other, there's other people in the administration which view this as a sort of long war with China as we sort of fight their entire state capitalist, you know, in, you know, subsidy state-owned company model. How does this sort of resolve itself? Or are we entering a long war with China on trade? Yeah, I'm not sure it's a long uh, war per se, um, but it certainly um, it's it's a long-term challenge to uh, sort of the Western idea of a market-oriented society when you have the government playing such a leading role in the economy and uh, possibly even dictating uh, resource allocation in terms of the uh, banking and, and credit system. So it's not something that I think one can solve very quickly or easily, um, and a lot depends on what China wants to do. So. The question is, is, is the Trump approach of just uh, imposing these tariffs um, going to succeed at all? I think they have given the Chinese leadership pause in terms of uh, how they want to respond because they weren't quite expecting this. But uh, they are also not clear about what the ask is of the U.S. What is it specifically that we want them to change? Um, do we want them to really uh, re, you know, reorient their economy completely in terms of uh, pulling back uh, uh, state levers? Is it just changing tariff levels? Or is it something as simple as just buying more U.S. products, which I think would be sort of the wrong way to go. We'd want to bring them in more effectively into the trading system and with uh, rules that would uh, you know, dictate how much they can support uh, state-owned enterprises and things of that sort. What are the sort of the myths that drive you crazy that people have about trade? Maybe you see it from your, your classes as you teach students. What, you know, what are sort of the, the ones where you find every, every year you have to sort of, no, no, this is how it actually works. What are, what are the big myths? That's a great question. But unfortunately, I've been working in this area for so long, probably uh, 30 years or so. I've heard them so often, I've become sort of uh, deadened to them. So they don't sort of arouse uh, the, the passions that uh, one might think. You know, I think commonly, you know, the a trade deficit measures the gains from trade um, that uh, we're losing, uh, is what the president says, we're losing as a result of a trade deficit. Um, that's something that uh, one encounters a lot and one always has to sort of push back against or at least explain what the uh, causes of a trade deficit are. The idea that if other, uh, other countries have high tariffs, um, that make, means trade is un, un, you know, sort of unfair in some sense and that uh, we should respond by imposing uh, uh, tariffs ourselves. There's a great quote from the uh, British economist Joan Robinson who said, just because other countries uh, throw rocks in their harbors doesn't mean we should have rocky coasts as well. Um, just because other countries have high tariffs and subsidies doesn't mean we're going to improve our lot by mimicking their behavior. Uh, so it's things of that sort, I guess, um, sort of views that uh, trade is uh, not fair in some dimension. Last question. Any concrete advice you could give this administration on what to do next? Well, unfortunately, if, if we had a president that was sort of open to ideas and evidence and want to consider um, alternative strategies, uh, that would, I think, be an administration one could constructively engage with. But I think if you have a president with very firm views that are uh, pretty much entrenched, and then the idea is how to implement those views, um, it's not so much that, uh, you know, I think that one can change the president's views on trade deficits and, uh, and, and thinking about uh, whether we should have, uh, you know, more agreements like NAFTA or fewer agreements. So um, I'm not sure there's any advice to be uh, uh, given, but I think uh, my hat is off to those advisors who maybe we don't hear about who try to push back against some of these notions and, and direct um, the administration's uh, uh, 
um, threats in a more constructive uh, direction, if that's possible. My guest today has been Douglas Irwin, author of Clashing Over Commerce, A History of U.S. Trade Policy. Douglas Irwin, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.